passage together, but let's pray first. God, we thank you for this opportunity to be gathered in this place and in your name. We thank you for this season uh, as we stop and we remember why it is that we celebrate Christmas and we spend this time together. We pray that you would lead and guide us in all truth. Uh, As we open your word, uh, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would show us what is true about who you are and what you've done for us, what it means for us, the freedom that comes from what you have done for us in Jesus. We pray that we would see that afresh today, uh, that we would never take for granted this time of year as we pause to consider the incarnation that you came to us, that we would see that uh, and all the glory that comes with it. And so we ask that you would lead and guide our time and that everything that is said and done would be for your honor and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Christmas Eve. How about that? Uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas Eve. Uh, excited that Sunday fell on a Christmas Eve. Uh, you know, it, it varies every year, but it's cool that Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. Uh, we're actually going to worship here this morning, and then we're going to have our, our traditional Christmas Eve service tonight and kind of book in the day. And I was thinking, I'm thankful for that and that it gives us this moment to just pause and to think for uh, together about what Christmas means and why it's so important and what it is that we're celebrating. And um, it's so easy in the uh, hecticness of the season and what's going on and all that happens to just be so busy. And so you're go, go, go. And we never stop and really think about what it is that we're celebrating and what it means. Or even in the midst of this, we come and we gather on Christmas Eve and we come to church and we're here, but our mind is elsewhere. Or we sing the songs that we sing and these great uh, Christmas hymns. And it's so easy to kind of gloss over and your mind be in a bunch of different places. And so my hope this morning is that we just get to slow down just a little bit and really think about what it is that we're celebrating at Christmas. You know, in a few minutes when we finish and we we have time to take communion together, uh, we'll sing a couple more songs. And one of the songs we're going to sing in a little bit is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And the first right at the beginning of that song, it says, In ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God Appears, And that's a song that you probably know. You probably know the words. You probably can sing it without even looking at the words. You've probably heard a whole lot of times if you grew up in the church. And we can gloss right over what that says, even in that song, even in that really familiar song. And we can sing it and not even stop to think about what it means. But in that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it says, And ransom captives. And it talks about them, those that mourn in lonely exile until the Son of God appears. And I was thinking about that phrase in that song and how familiar that song is, but I wanted us just to stop and think about that a little bit this morning, that when Jesus comes, that he ransomed captives and that he welcomes the exiles home again. And that's really what we're singing in that song. And I wanted us just to think about that idea this morning, just for a few minutes together. And we're going to do that by looking at the passage that Mel just read to us from Galatians chapter 3. And so maybe you go, well, Galatians 3, your, your, your normal Christmas sermon, right? Galatians 3, that's what everybody thinks of, the ends of, of Galatians chapter 3. But Galatians chapter 3 is pointing us to how Jesus has come and set us free. Because of his coming and what he's done for us, that we're now, we're no longer captives. And we've been freed because of what he's done. We're no longer exiles, but we now get to come home to the thing that we were made for. 
And so I want us just to look at those few verses at the end of Galatians chapter 3 this morning and think about what it is that it says there and why that's so important. And so as we look at it real simply, this is the way we're going to look at that that passage, those last few verses of Galatians 3, is first of all, I just want us to consider how are we captives? What is it talking about there? When it talks, it uses that language in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul writing here talks about captives who were imprisoned and what that looks like. And then he tells us how Jesus frees us. What he says here is that Jesus has freed us from being captives. And so the first thing I want us to consider is how are we captives? But then secondly, how does Jesus free us? And then lastly, uh, what that means for us today. And we're not going to get to everything that it means for us today, but I want to point out a couple of things about why that's so wonderful that Jesus has freed us and what that means. And so let's just start with how we're captives uh, how to define that, how to think about that together. We're going to jump into Galatians. We're kind of parachuting into Galatians. If you've been with us here throughout the year, we've spent the last two years going through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels in chronological order, and we just finished. We just finished two weeks ago, and so we got a couple kind of one-off sermons, and then we'll start a new series in the new year. But we're so we're parachuting into Galatians. We haven't been in the book of Galatians. We've not been talking about that a lot. And so I just want to set the scene for you real quick as we start to look at this passage together. The Apostle Paul went and planted a church in this area, in, in Galatia. And he was there, and he helped get the church going, and then he went on and kept, uh, as he did, traveled from town to town and was spreading the gospel and the good news of who Jesus is. And then he heard that in this town and in this area that people had come behind him and were starting to undo the work that he had done there. There was a group of, they were, they were known as Judaizers that came in behind Paul. And what they started to do is, yes, yes, it's, it's, you're saved in Jesus, but you also have to do some other things. You have to be Jewish and you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the Sabbath and you have to eat a certain way and you have to do all these things. And Paul got wind that that was happening in this town where he had planted this church. And he was so distraught and upset that that was the case, that he wrote this letter to these people to say, that's not it. That's not what I told you. In fact, if you if you start to read through the book of Galatians, he does his normal greeting. And then the very first thing he says to him is, I am astonished that you have so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. That's the way he starts. And what he's saying is, is they were taking the good news of what Jesus has done, that you're saved by grace through faith and what Christ has done, and they were adding works to it. That that wasn't enough, that you had to do a bunch of other things too. And Paul says, that's not the gospel, and I can't believe that you would desert the truth. And so he writes this letter in love to encourage them and tell them and explain to them why it's all Jesus and all his doing. And what he's going to say here, and this is what we're going to kind of narrow our focus on here this morning, is that if you try to add anything to it, if you try to be saved by what you do and you're doing, you will be a slave to that and you will never, ever be able to do it. And so we start to think about what does he set us free from? How are we captives? Look at what he says here in verse 23. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so I want us to think of uh, the way that phrase and what he's talking about here and what it is he's saying, what he's getting at. I think this is really important and particularly when we gather together on Christmas Eve. I hear this all the time and I think it's one of the biggest misconceptions when people start to talk about Christianity or the church or Jesus or following him, particularly in the South. 
We end up with this idea that what it means to follow Jesus is to try to do the things the Bible tells you to do, the best that you can do them, and if you do them well enough, then God will accept you. And that's what you hear a lot of times. That's what you hear around Christmas. Oftentimes, that's the language that we start to use. And we talk that way. I don't know about you, but I I have the unique position of being a pastor uh, usually when you meet people, one of the common things, particularly for guys, you meet another guy, they say, well, what do you do? And I go, um, I'm a pastor of a church, and I've gotten this for years, since I moved to Dawsonville, since I've been a pastor at this church. I meet people, I have that conversation, and you know what happens about 80% of the time? I get their spiritual resume. They just start to tell me all these things. Well, my granddaddy was a pastor, and uh, I went to church camp when I was a kid, and I once went on a mission trip and I did this and I did. And they just start telling you all these things. And you're like, OK. <laughs> but I start to get this spiritual resume. And what I've seen happen so often is they hear you're a pastor. Oh, you're, you're a professional at seeking to do this. And so I better tell you how good I am. And the undercurrent of that is we think that we're good with God by how good we are. That's this kind of social gospel in the South. Be a good person and God will accept you. Uh, it, it leaks into the way we talk about Christmas, whether believer or unbeliever, whether people are professing to be a Christian or not. They start to talk about Christmas and they say it's the most wonderful time of the year. And so everybody's nicer. And we try to be kind and we give money to charity and we give gifts and we do great things. And, and it's the good of humanity. Maybe you've watched Christmas movies this last week. Right? Any Christmas movie you turn on, like the Hallmark Channel, all those real cheesy kind of movie, no offense if you like those, those great movies that you enjoy, and you watch them and all of them are kind of the same, right? They kind of say the same thing, like the, it's about the goodness of humanity, and that's what the Christmas spirit is, and we're all trying to be better, and we're all trying to, or I'll, I'll hear people say that to me that are not religious. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, well, I'm not sure about your religion or Jesus or him being God or doctrine, but we can all agree that Christmas is about trying to be nicer. And that's what ends up happening a lot of times. And we talk that way and we start to operate that way. And that's the way a lot of our culture operates. And we begin to say those things. But here's the problem. And there's a huge gaping problem with this thinking. If we're taking what the Bible says, what the Bible says and what the Apostle Paul tells you right here in Galatians and in Romans and all the way through the New Testament. But it says it over and over. And I'll read it to you from Galatians 3 and verse 10. If you've got your Bible open to Galatians 3, you can read it with me. But verse 10, he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Hear what he says. It's the same thing that he says in Romans chapter three, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, talking about God, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so what the Bible clearly says is if you're operating under the assumption that I can do some things and do them pretty well, and that's the way that I get to be good with God, that will never, ever work. That's what the Bible says over and over. No one will be justified in his sight by what you do. You can never, ever do enough. He says, cursed is the one that's that. And he's quoting there from Deuteronomy when he says that. And so, so often around Christmas, we confuse what Christianity and what Jesus is about and what the Bible is talking about. And we make it all about trying to do good works and do them a little better and be a little nicer. 
And if you do that, and then the assumption is, then God will be pleased with you. But that's not what the Bible says. In fact, that's not even what the law was for. I don't know if you ever thought about that. God gives the law to his people that they can't keep, that they will never ever be able to fully do. He gives the law to them, and they can't do it. But then we immediately, in the sinfulness of our heart, take the law and twist it and go, oh, this is for me to do so that I can be accepted by God. But that's not why he gave the law. That's not what he was doing when he gave that to us. And if we take it and we use it that way, as we often do, what we're doing is we're submitting to a slavery that we'll never be able to get break free from. We become captives. And that's actually kind of what Paul's talking about here. Right? You think about it. If you're trying to earn your worth before God by keeping his law perfectly and you can't do that, where does that end? Slavery. Not freedom. It's not good. It's not a pretty picture. And that's exactly the point that Paul is trying to make here. And so I think uh, how relevant that I believe this message is. I think of so many people that I know uh, I'm speaking for me here. I'm 47 years old. And so uh, I was thinking about this yesterday as I was walking and going over my sermon. Most likely, I'm past halfway, right? The odds are I'm probably not going to live to be 94. Maybe I will, but I'm probably past halfway. And I have a lot of friends that are around my age, and I see a lot of them dealing with that. Midlife crisis. Is this all my life's going to be? Is this all there is? And some of them are getting new spouses. Some of them are getting new jobs. Some of them are moving to different places. But they're trying so hard to validate their life. If I could just get these things a little better. If I could just get a little better job. If I could just be a little better person. I know a lot of people that have done that. They got into big self-help thing. And I'm going to be better. right? Maybe you feel that. New Year's, right? This year's going to be the year that I eat really healthy and work out a lot. And we start to do that and we start to get our identity from those kinds of things. And really what we're doing is we're trying to justify our existence by what we do. And so if that's not what it's about, and that's not why God gave the law, then why did he give the law? It's pretty harsh if you think about it, isn't it? If God gives us a law that we can't do, that shows us that we can't do it, why would he do that? And then say, do all these things or cursed is the one that doesn't do them all. Sounds pretty rough. But I want to make the case to you that it's actually God's grace that he gives us the law. And I'm going to tell you why. And I think it actually says so right here in this passage. Right? Look at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. And so I want to just stop there for a second and think about what he says. So he gives us the law and it imprisons us under it and then it acts as a guardian. And so God gives us the law for a couple reasons. He gives us the law to show us how his world works. He's the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And the laws that he gives us is how his creation works best. And so he gives that to us so that we know how to live in the world. I made the world, God says. I'm the creator of everything. And I want you to understand how it works. This is how it works. So that's part of it. He gives it to us to show us how to live. But then he also gives it to us to constrain evil. 
right? It even uses the language here uh, that we were held captives. Or, the, or in verse 24, he says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Uh, I heard it said years ago that the law is like the guardrails on the highway, right? What are the guardrails there for? Right? When a wreck happens, and they do happen, it helps you from careening off the hill and going and rolling down and dying. And so God gives us the laws as guardrails to help us not be as evil as we could be in our sinfulness. Right? So it shows us how to live, but it also uh, shows us how to constrain evil, to make things be better than they could be without his law. But then secondly, as it shows us our need. He gives us the law, not so that we can perfectly do these things and attain salvation, but he gives us the law to show us that we haven't done it and we're in need. And so when it talks about here in verse three, we were held captive under the law. That in hearing God's law, we now realize that we haven't done it and we know our need. I often think about when they first gave, when God first gave the Ten Commandments. If you've not read that, you can go read it. Uh, Exodus 20 is when he speaks and gives the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19 is when he tells Moses to get all the people ready. He says, tell them to come to this mountain and I'm going to speak. And a great cloud descends on the mountain and all the people come around and God says, tell them not to come too close or they will be consumed by my glory. And they stand there and they gather around the mountain and they hear the voice of God speak. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And I often think when he gets down to the end, he's talking about not lying and not stealing, don't covet, and you get to the end, how every single person there went, oh no, I've already blown it. The second they heard the Ten Commandments, everyone there stood condemned. Every single person knew that they hadn't measured up. Every single person was now imprisoned under the law because they couldn't say, well, I didn't know. Now they knew. And now they knew for sure that they hadn't measured up. And so God gives the law to show us that we haven't measured up. And I want you to think about that that is his grace. It is gracious to tell someone where they're deficient in the hopes of helping them get better, right? It's not gracious to ignore it. And so God gives us by his grace and shows us where we failed. But then the last part of why he gives the law is what it says right there in verse 24. So that the law was our guardian until Christ came. But then look at what it says. In order that we might be justified by faith. In order. right? He gave us the law and he shows us that we don't measure up and that we haven't done it in order that we would know that we need a savior. The law points ahead to Jesus. And it says, you haven't done it, and you've not been able to do it, and you will never be able to do it, but I am coming and I will do it for you. And that's the whole story of the Bible from the very beginning. You can go back to to, uh, Genesis chapter 3, and the first sin, and Adam and Eve, and they sin, and they know it, and their eyes are opened, and they know that they're naked, And they're pointing fingers at each other and all of a sudden all of this comes flooding in and God pursues them and he comes and finds them and he says, I'm going to send one through your seed, Eve, that's going to fix this problem. And the whole story is about that. The whole story is about the one who is to come that's going to fix things for us. And so as we start to think about this picture of what God's doing and what it's saying here is that we're captives held captive under the law because of our sin. The law shows us what is true. 
It shows us our need. It constrains evil. It shows us how the world works. But ultimately, it points us forward to Jesus. Now, here's the question for Christmas. How does Jesus set us free? And why did he have to come? Why did he have to come in the flesh, the incarnation? The son of God who becomes fully God and fully man. And he comes and lives among us. Why did he have to come? And how does that lead us to freedom? Well, look at what he says. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so I want you to think about what he's saying there and what he's pointing us to. The law is the guardian until Christ comes in order that we might be justified by faith. And so Christ comes. Christmas, the advent, he's here, he's come. God comes and enters into time and space. And he lives the life that we haven't lived. He shows up and where we have failed, right? He says, here Paul's quoting, if I go back to verse 10, he's quoting from Deuteronomy and he says, cursed is all the ones that don't uh, do everything written in the book of the law, right? That's from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a sermon that Moses gives to the people as they're about to go into the promised land. But he says, cursed if you don't hear all these things and do it. If you go and you read all those passages where Moses is laying all that stuff out and all the law, there's curses and there's blessings, The curse is if you don't do it. Another way of saying that is consequences. There's consequences if you don't do it. And if you do it, there's blessings. And every single one of us has not done it. And every single one of us stands under the curse of our own sin. Because we've rebelled against God and the world he created. And not a single one of us can ever do enough to ever make that right. Ever. But Jesus comes... And he steps into this life, fully God and fully man, tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He is the perfect covenant keeper. He keeps all of it. He loves God and he loves people perfectly in every way and in everything and his entire life and all of it. And he comes to the end of his life and he deserves all the blessings that come with being a covenant keeper. Where we deserve the curses He deserves the blessings. It's why the incarnation is so very important because Jesus comes and he's tempted in every way that we are. He succeeds where we failed. He does what we haven't done for us. But then he gets to the end of his life and you go, well, how do we get set free? Because he decides to become a curse for us. If you go back in Galatians in chapter three, in verse 12, he says, but the law... Is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by faith. And then he says, Christ redeemed us, verse 13, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you hear what he's saying? When Jesus goes to the cross, and we just spent the last few months talking about his march to the cross and everything he did and the way in which he chose to go to the cross. And he goes to the cross, and in so doing, he becomes the curse for us. He takes on the sin of all those that would put their faith in him. And even though he deserves all the blessing, he says, no, I will become a curse on your behalf. And he takes it upon himself. 
and he lays down his life and he brings it to nothing that we can be forgiven. And then he says, by grace, through faith, you put your faith in me and what I've done for you and you get all of my righteousness. Right? Look at what it says here. Look at the language that Paul uses. But now faith has come. You're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You're now clothed with his righteousness because of what he's done for you. You're made new. Your sins are gone. They're taken away because he became a curse for us. And it took him coming and living in this life and living the life that we haven't lived. Succeeding in all the ways that we failed and then willfully saying, I will become a curse for you. I will take all your sin. And when he does so, God is both just and merciful. He deals with sin. He doesn't let it go unpunished, but he allows Jesus to take our place for us. And so he does. And he sets us free. And I want you to think about that for just a second, about how he sets us free and what that means. So often we live our life trying to justify ourselves by what we do. And if you're honest, and if we went around the room and we asked every single person here, every single one of us fails. And we fail again and again. And we don't live up. And we blow it. And we know that that is true. No matter what you tell yourself, no matter how you try to do an end around and, oh, it wasn't that bad and I just reacted the way anyone would have reacted in that situation. All the ways that we try to justify ourselves, deep down, you know you've not measured up. And what Christmas says is that Jesus knows that you've not measured up. And he says, I love you so much, I'm going to come and do for you what you can't do for yourself. And so he does. And he lays down his life for you. He becomes a curse for you. He takes your sin upon himself and he frees you from all those mistakes and all your mess and all your rebellion and all the things that you want to pretend that you have together that you don't. And he knows every bit of it and he takes it on his, upon himself and then he applies his righteousness to you and you're a new creation. And the father looks at you and he sees you in Christ. Those that have put on Christ is the way Paul says it here. Those who have been baptized in, those that have professed that Jesus is my savior, that it's not my doing, that I can never ever do enough, that I desperately need Jesus to do for me what I can never do for myself. And he says, I will gladly do that. And so he does. And he frees you from living a life of trying to justify yourself by what you do. And he says, now your identity is in me. And I've got you in my perfect righteousness. You are now clothed and you are in me and I am in you and I've got you in the midst of this. And so I want you to think about just some of the practical outworking of what that means. And I hope that you see this afresh today. When you wake up tomorrow on Christmas morning and you realize what Jesus has done for you. The first thing I'd say to you is you can be honest. You can be honest with your failures. Jesus knows every single one of them. 
And he loved you so much that he came to do for you what you can't do for yourself. That you don't have to hide those things. But he says, you come to me, you who are heavy laden, you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. And so what it means when we understand the truth of what Jesus has done as Christmas is that you can be open and honest and you can come to him and you can lay him at his feet and you find forgiveness. And he says, I got you. He knows all of it anyway. And he invites you to come. You confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all righteousness. You don't have to pretend. You can be honest. You can come to him with your failures. You can live a life of repentance that says, God, I have blown it. And he says, I know, that's why I came. So we're celebrating at Christmas that the Son of God has appeared, that the captives can go free. And so you get to be honest. The second thing I'd say to you is you're no longer a slave to sin. All of those that have been baptized have put on Christ. You are now in him and he is in you. You are a new creation. And that means the things that you're struggling with and the things that you blow it and the things that you're not sure about and the things that you want to hide, he says, I'm making you new and you don't have to live that way anymore. And it's not because you're a perfect person and you figured it out and you so, right, that's the back door. We want to make it about our works. It's because of who he is and he has defeated sin and death and he is now with you and in you and you now have the spirit abiding in you. You don't have to live that way anymore. You have a freedom to fully live the way God's designed you to live. You don't have to be in exile anymore. You can come home. You can come home to the one who made you in all things. And you can now live the way that he's designed you to live. Jesus has done for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And I want you to please hear that as you leave here this morning. As you wake up tomorrow, and if we come back and we sing tonight, and you think about the songs we're singing and who, what Jesus has done for us and what it means. It means that we've been freed by his finished work. That he has come and done what we could never do for us. Oh, that I pray that that would be the center of all of our Christmas celebrations. That we'd wake up tomorrow in freedom that we have in Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you meet us where we are. That you know all of our mess and all of our issues and all that is going on. And you still look down and came to us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. I pray for those right now that are still submitting to the yoke of slavery that says that we're accepted by what we do rather than what you've done, I pray that we would lay that down. That we would see that we're saved by grace through faith in what you have finished. That you have finished this work. That it's because you came and did what we could never do. Help us to see that afresh. I pray that our Christmas celebrations in whatever ways those are happening that they would be infused with the grace and the glory of what you've done for us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.